Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You guys, I have a confession to make. Do tell. I have betrayed rational security. What? <gasps> what? I ordered a Casper mattress. <laughs> <gasps> Whoa. Oh, really? Whoa. I really, know. Susan. I know. No, no. It pains me. But I looked and and I heard on other podcasts and I just, I was weak. Mm. But it hasn't arrived yet. Send and it if back. it is anything short of excellent, because they do not sponsor us, I will like burn it to the ground. <laughs> actually, actually, that's maybe maybe we should go on a campaign uh, to since both Casper mattresses and Helix Sleep, neither of which sponsor Rational Security, um, since they both give you a hundred days money back, they'll pick it up. Maybe we should encourage our listeners to buy one and return it after a hundred days. <laughs> Please, leaders, inconvenience yourselves. Exactly. <laughs> That'll definitely For help fun. us get sponsorship. It's the blackmail option. <clears throat> oh, yeah, yeah. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the lady you can drive your car edition. I'm Shane Harris. <laughs> Just Delighted reporter. Yourself. Oh, it, this, is, this is big news. I we'll get to this bit later. I thought this was just one, a wonderful story and a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for Beatles illusions. Anytime those two events can coincide, how can you say no? You can't say no. It's un-American. Uh, I am here in the jungle studio, the steamy jungle studio. It's yeah, hot, hot outside, today. you guys. DC man. This is like the last gasp of of summer. This is like the dead enders of summer. (laughs) (laughs) You watch, it's gonna be like a hundred degrees on Halloween. Yep. I'm here with Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittis, and Tamara Kaufman with us. Hi guys. Hi Shane. Hey. Uh, this week on the podcast, the Trump administration issues a new revised travel ban, new and improved travel ban. Saudi it's so exciting how we get these travel bans. Travel ban right? 3.0. Right, 3.0, yeah. Yeah, it's like when first you don't succeed, try the ban again. It's kind of like the Apple iOS. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> There's a travel ban system update on your phone. <laughs> I'm not no, that, downloading that's this. That's pretty close to accurate. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. sort of like a... The bugs you know, get identified, Right, and then out. they kind of do a... a, do, do a they put in they new features. Yeah. yeah, we used to call it the interagency. <laughs> <laughs> It's policy by improv. Uh, Also this week, Saudi Arabia will allow women to drive. We're going to talk about what that means for reform uh, and how we see that in the kingdom and what that means for the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia. And President Trump tweets about a missile launch that didn't happen. Or maybe it did happen now that he tweeted about it. If a tweet falls in the woods. (laughs) Boom. Boom. There's a tweet in a box. It's alive. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, let's start with the the new and improved, or however we're thinking of it, uh, travel ban. Uh, it is, well, it's nine countries, though eight sort of. It's eight sort of nine, I think is how we're looking well, at it. Well, I mean, you know. If nine you... countries are affected. Yeah, the the rules nine... for Iraq seem to be a little bit different than the other eight. Well, and, and Venezuela is just some government folks. Right, that we right. Want and to North Korea. And North Korea, nobody travels from there right. to here anyway. Right. And Chad? Chad. Where did. How did that happen? So let's okay. Let's let's. Uh, there's several questions that are important. Let, let's let, let's talk the. Let's get to the legal questions second, because the Supreme Court essentially said, "Hold on, we're not going to do oral arguments. Submit new briefs because now we have a new order in front of us." So we'll get to that in a second. But let's talk about just the 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 makeup of this list and what logic, if any, you all detect in it. Ben, you raised the question of. Chad, um, you know, Chad has been a fairly steadfast, relatively steadfast, I would say, partner in counterterrorism uh, with the United States. We have military trainers there training them on counter uh, insurgent operations. Uh, they don't necessarily have the they haven't been apparently handing over the information we want for the purposes of information sharing and counterterrorism. But it's a new entrant and one that some people were surprised to see. So what do you guys detect as the logic for who is actually on this list and why? Yeah, so I think the fact that so many experts were surprised to see Chad on the list is less relevant than the fact that the leadership in Chad was so surprised to see Chad on the list because... Hanging so- Chad. <laughs> oh, you had to go there. <laughs> this is a punny Sorry. show. Yeah. People know what they're getting into. Sorry, folks. Uh, you know, I, I because I think it indicates that there wasn't as much back and forth with these governments necessarily as uh, the administration is claiming. They're claiming that they uh, determined this list of countries based on objective criteria about who would turn over uh, information that would let us verify the identity of travelers, who uses biometric data that they'll share with us. And also this sort of vague criterion about sharing information regarding terrorist and criminal networks emanating from that country. And so the DHS claims um, and the administration claims that they had discussions with a whole lot of countries and countries agreed to make improvements. And so they didn't go on the list, but Chad didn't. And so it is on the list. Well, if that's the case, why is the Chad government surprised? Mm. Um, So that would be my first question. But The second thing is that it seems as though in the case of Chad, it's not the uh, traveler information that is the problem. Um, It's that they weren't giving all the information that the U.S. government wanted about terrorist activity, Boko Haram specifically, activity in and around the country of Chad. And that made me wonder whether this list is in essence being used for policy purposes beyond homeland security that it's being used as leverage on mm. countries to shift their counterterrorism cooperation with us in ways that we would like. So I think there are two. I mean, there, there is sort of the suspicion that the inclusion, at least, of North Korea and Venezuela were to undercut you know, the ability to say this is a, a Muslim ban, um, which has been one of the arguments that has been um, problematic in courts. Um, I don't know that there's much to support that beyond just sort of broad suspicion about President Trump and his sort of genuine motives there. Um, It'll be interesting to see if, as with the prior two travel bans, um, he tweets things. 
things or his administration says things that make their actual underlying intention clear. Um, I mean, I'll sort of kick it over to Ben because, you know, Ben wrote a, a long piece on this yesterday. But I, I do think that uh, the, the point that you made in that piece, which is, is, is the important one, and that is it, it continues to have the defect it originally had, which is it doesn't appear to achieve any meaningful national security purpose at all, which sort of by the time we get into the like the the pros and cons and the negatives, it's sort of well, what are we even doing here? This how does this help make people safer? Mm-hmm. Right, right. So it goes from discriminatory to arbitrary. So well, there is a logic to the selection of countries, and the logic is laid out in the proclamation itself, and it is that uh, we determined that we needed certain basic information sharing in order to admit people from countries. And so we went to all the countries in the world and said, here's the information that we need. And we assessed whether the countries were in a position to provide this information about people who were coming to the United States from those countries. And they're, you know, basic identity verification and threat information Uh, kind of questions, and that these were the countries that were both deficient in their ability to provide the information and uh, failed to correct uh, the deficiencies by the time the order was promulgated. Um, And so as a a basic, um, you know, methodological account of how you... uh, um, how you might put together such a list. It's, you know, it's not a sort of batshit crazy way to do it. But that masks the larger point, which is batshit crazy, which is why would you uh, respond with essentially a blanket ban even to a country where you can't know uh, in a way that you would consider authoritative what the people are. For example, in Yemen, it's quite unreasonable to imagine that a failed state like Yemen is going to be able to provide you that kind of information. Is that a good reason to keep essentially all people from Yemen out of the United States? North Korea, we don't have normal diplomatic contacts with of any kind. Uh, I would want North Korean defectors to end up in the United States. And Chad sends so few people to the United States, I'm not uh, particularly concerned about the security threat that they pose, irrespective of, you know, the information sharing of the government. And if you compare that to, say, all the people in France who uh, I might be worried have been radicalized and come here subject to a visa waiver program, uh, it, there's no rational threat assessment, in my view, in which this larger policy apparatus makes any sense. So it's not the specific selection of the countries that troubles me. It's the irrationality of the larger policy that, oh, let's figure out which countries whose nationals we should ban from the United States. So then States. what's the motive? Is it is it is it to put a fig leaf um, or mask the idea of this being a Muslim ban, as Susan suggested, or is it more as tomorrow was saying, that we're going to start using this as an instrument to get all kinds of countries to do things we might want them to do. I or, mean, or just to say things about these countries like, we don't like you. Right, and so we, it's, you it's know, a Iran and North Korea, I mean, <clears throat> in the Iranian case, we have a ton of Iranians who visit the United States because they have family members here. A lot of Iranians 
have been educated here, including the Iranian foreign minister, Javad Zarif, who has a PhD from the United States. You know, and generally speaking, over the years, successive administrations have thought of that kind of people-to-people engagement as a positive. When we have a very adversarial relationship with the regime, you build a positive relationship with the people and hope, you know, over the long term that the regime doesn't last. And and indeed, Iranians are uh, certainly amongst Middle Eastern countries very pro-American, relatively speaking. Um, and so it's... It's not as though admission policies have never had anything to do with other foreign policy goals, but this seems really counterproductive in terms of other foreign policy goals. I, and I actually think, you know, Ben referenced the visa waiver program. You know, there are longstanding issues that actually could be corrected. And if you wanted, if what he wanted was sort of a, a not just symbolic victory, but saying, you know, look, uh, you know, I, I am tough on, on immigration. I am tough on sort of terrorism threats. And to do so in a way that would make it incredibly difficult for the Democrats to criticize politically and difficult for it to assail in court. The visa waiver program is a great example. Example, Dianne Feinstein has been screaming about the deficiencies and security risks of the visa waiver program for almost a decade at this point. You know, there are there's sort of a clear roadmap for what you would need to do to sort of tighten up those policies. The legislation has already been written in some cases, and yet they sort of they leave that stuff on the table in favor of pursuing a campaign like, promise. Arbitrary sort of <laughs> random stuff. I mean, yeah. Chad, where did this where did this come from? But but I do think the you know the answer to Shane's question is a bit of a head scratcher, right? Is this the residue of a Muslim ban? Is it a chest thumping, look how tough I am, kind of thing, or is it is it do people actually believe this is policy that makes sense? And I think the you know the best that I can reconstruct here is a function of Trump's tweets, actually. Mm. Um, So, you know, and speeches. So during the campaign, you know, he, I, Donald J. Trump, am, you know, promising a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until we can figure out what the heck is going on, right? That's his, the the toughest he can be, right? Uh, And he, he did say the other day, the the travel ban the tougher the better right the 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 premium the policy premium here is being put on what he calls toughness which is what other people call being an asshole and um and but he he really wants like to send a message of toughness so during the campaign that is you know the muslim ban right and he's very active about defending it in the first few days of the administration, he puts out this executive order that creates real havoc for a lot of real-time travelers. That's really a, a you know, a, a chaotic uh, environment uh, and causes a lot of pain for people. And he was really proud of it. I mean, he he is quoted. Uh, in the first few days of it saying that it's all going very well. He really seemed quite to enjoy. He was selling it. Yeah. He was selling it, but he was pleased. Yeah. Um, and um, then they had to walk it back for legal reasons. And version 2.0 is much less 
uh, much less careless with people's lives. Well, let's talk. Then let's 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 talk then briefly about looking to the Supreme Court challenge against this now. But look, look, just just to, to to finish the thought, okay. he was way less proud of version two. Right. Okay. That's right. Yes. And he yeah. he actually tweeted his disappointment about yeah. it that the, you know the Justice Department should have stuck enough. with right. the original right. one right. And, right. and and this, none of this politically correct. None of this politically correct with. bullshit. Yeah. And this one he released. Uh, you know, on a Sunday evening uh, while he was busy tweeting about the, you know, the NFL. And I I do think there's an element of that that's um, that's it's kind of the residue of his kind of uh, facade of toughness. And it actually doesn't it's not really a real policy objective. It's just a face saving gesture. So I, I do think that this gets to sort of Shane's question about what its future in the court is. And, and it sort of my theory a little bit answers both. And that's that um, uh, what happens is you have a campaign pro- uh, promise that is sort of translated into bad policy that like those, that original ban. It is then, you know, meets the realities of the court. And so what you have is then a compromised vehicle and try Trump sort of abandons it because there's not much you can do that's going to sort of pass the court. Mm-hmm. And so then you have a bunch of people that have this sort of vehicle that they then can try and do some things with. That you, you could try and enact good policy. You can try and put like face saving policy in that. And this sort of strikes me as they were left with this thing. There was some kind of immigration stuff you could do. And so that then you have, OK, well, we aren't having the information sharing. Does that mean that the Supreme Court won't sort of judge it completely as a new thing. Like they, they will say, now this this looks like the old car you were driving around and you just repainted it and uh, added some new wheels, but we're still judging what this thing originated as. Well, so, I mean, I think that's going to be a really interesting question. I mean, I, I, I assume that it will require an entirely new litigation, that, it, you know, that the old litigation will be mooted out and that this one uh, will require a new filing in district court. And I assume further that the people challenging it will try to drape around the president's neck in the court's evaluation of it, every statement that he made that they draped around his neck with the first two iterations. Uh, And, you know, the question of how long it takes for that, the taint of those statements to abate and how completely it ever abates is a, is one of the weird questions that this litigation yeah. uh, begs. And I, I do think one of the the real questions will be: Can they resist the temptation to say something this time? So they had right. the first one; they made all these sort of you know ridiculous, horrible statements. Right. Then they they had the second one. Then they undo having the second one by saying, "Well, you know, this is the watered down version, or this is the one that's going to get right. through the court." Now we have a third version. Have they learned their lesson enough so to if Trump just tweets, shut does he just up? like? Right. Sink it again. Yeah. Right. Well, and I think it's interesting that they didn't roll this out with a lot of publicity, and Trump hasn't said a word about it so far. Maybe they've. Maybe the message has gotten through to him from someone that you know, Don't as passionately as you feel about this, you're not helping our chances. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We shall see. That's gonna be fascinating. Um, Saudi Arabia, women can drive. We'll soon be allowed to drive in KSA. Well, Um, right. So a royal decree was issued yesterday in the name of the um, elderly King Salman. Not like a royal decree from the DMV, like from the top. From the king. A presidential proclamation. Oh. In essence, (laughs) yeah, except from an absolute monarch. (laughs) Um, 
Yeah, and you know, this is. <clears throat> I think the the driving issue is one of those issues that certainly uh, in, amongst Western audiences is symbolic of Saudi Arabia is right. that they don't let women drive. Right. It's kind of one of the first things you learn, I think, in school about Saudi Arabia. At least it was that I did. Yeah, right. As and there's kid. no yeah. question that it has all kinds of horrific effects. Um, the the longstanding ban on women driving in Saudi Arabia, especially for poorer and more rural women who. Um, often, you know, certainly can't uh, afford a driver to schlep them around, um, have to rely on male family members if they need to get to medical care or, you know, pick up a sick kid from school or whatever it may be. Um, and so it, it has created some horrible inequities and, and some real challenges for development. And it's been a major barrier to women joining the labor force in Saudi Arabia. Um so there's no question that this is a big move. It's something that gives women in Saudi Arabia more autonomy um, and a degree of greater liberty. Uh, but, you know, and and it, I have to say, it's something that a number of brave Saudi women activists have fought for, demonstrated for, illegally driven for, for years um, and uh, since the 1990s, and uh, and there are over a hundred women who have faced various consequences from losing their jobs to to being uh, jailed for uh, attempting to drive in Saudi Arabia and bringing attention to this. So kudos to them. At the same time, if you ask women in Saudi Arabia, what is your top priority for gender re- reform in the kingdom? None of them would have said mm. driving. Um, they want more than they, they see that as as small. It's it's not that it's small, but it is by no means the biggest obstacle they face. The biggest obstacle they face is the system of legal guardianship, right. whereby a woman in Saudi Arabia is not an autonomous entity. She can't travel without permission of her male guardian. She can't get medical care without permission of her male guardian. Uh, it up until recently, uh, um, there women couldn't represent. As lawyers, uh, you know, people in court, there are all kinds of major barriers to women's presence in public life or their recognition as human beings because of the guardianship system. And so driving was just one little manifestation of that. Um, but can so, I ask, should, should we view this as like the first step towards that progress, right? Yeah, is that this was like question, yeah. the first thing that eventually it is the dismantling of the guardianship system? Or is this just something like it's so disconnected? Because everyone says Mohammed bin Salman, you know, the soon to be king, is he's the reformer. But they, <laughs> right. they, they always say that right, about the person who's not yet king. Right. And he's really a reformer. Just wait until he gets in. He's going to A reformer who's everything. been eliminating his opposition and cracking down on um, opponents and putting them in jail. But Right. So the cynical. <laughs> interpretation of this um, of this sudden policy change is a desire to change the subject. Uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is actually up in front of the UN Human Rights Council right now, um, where there's going to be a vote on inquiring into human rights violations by the Saudis in their prosecution of the war in Yemen. Um, they ha- have been engaged in a major crackdown on dissident clerics. Uh, they've been in a, on a major crackdown, actually, of all kinds of dissidents, including people who have just tweeted critically of of the government. And so this is a great way to sort of change the narrative um, and to do something that they know is going to catch the attention of Western audiences. But I, I think, Susan, you're right that it's something that's going to have powerful ripple effects. Um, 
the Saudi government's talked for a long time about its desire to see more women enter the workforce. And women um, in, in Saudi Arabia are relatively well educated. In fact, there are many more women than men in Saudi universities. Um, but they, it's very hard to join the workforce if you can't get to work or if you have to pay a portion of your salary to a driver or just to Uber to get around. Um, and so this could be an incredible accelerator for women's inclusion in public life in Saudi Arabia. I hope it will be. Um, but what we see historically in Saudi is that every reform action produces a reaction. And what's interesting to me about the lifting of this ban is that it's not right away. The decree yesterday announced a period of 30 days for experts to study the issue and provide advice to the king. Uh, and then the ban itself is not lifted until next June, June 2018. And what that means is that they announced the step, they got the press coverage, they're getting the love. But if they see a lot of pushback, especially from the mm. conservative clerics who are the major backers of the regime, they can always roll it back. It was interesting yesterday as they were announcing it. You know, you mentioned the the press of it. There was a big press push. We were alerted as reporters were all over Washington, I think, and in Riyadh, too, about two hours before they were having this event at the embassy, and they wouldn't tell us what it was. And we actually thought that they might be announcing the abdication of the king, right. which is something that has been rumored, you know, wild, wild, well, not wild rumors, actual, I think, pretty well-sourced rumors floating around for a while that he will step down possibly by the end of the year or just after which then kind of raises the interesting question of when this gets implemented, this will now be the job of the now who they've been the new king, Mohammed bin Salman, who kind of is fashioning himself as this more progressive. I mean, the timing of all of that also seems you know, not accidental, right? Yeah. Oh, it's a really interesting point, actually, Shane, that, you know, the elderly father who's widely respected can um, can make the tough decision. Right. But his 32-year-old son gets the credit for implementing it. So it, you're right. If, in fact, there is an abdication, um, which many people expect before the end of the year, this this would be a great kind of win for a young a young new king. And, and Mohammed bin Salman is lauded not only in the West for his economic reform plans and his um, – his reputation as a modernizer, but he's also seen by many young people in the kingdom as because he'll be the first king from a new generation and mm -hmm. because he himself is so young, uh, they really are pinning a lot of hopes on this guy that he can help realize their aspirations. And 50% of Saudi Arabia's 20-odd million people are under 15. It's so it's it's a very young country, and for them to have a young, even a young crown prince making these kinds of dramatic changes is definitely worth noting. It also seems that this is a way of kind of putting a button on this. There, That kind of view of Mohammed bin Salman seems both in line with how many, I think, in the Trump administration see him. There's like a lot of affection oh, for Oliver him. Oh, Oliver Washington. Right. Well, I, well, it's interesting, though. Let me, let's me let's interrogate that for a second, because, you know, a lot of people I know in the intelligence community compare Mohammed bin Salman to Jared Kushner, and they don't mean it as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's a lot of affection between Kushner and bin Salman. But with I think within a lot of the, the ranks of the intelligence community, there's a deep suspicion of bin Salman as someone who is... Um, a neophyte is um, overreactive, right. uh, has a temper, <clears throat> and is executing what, I mean, to many people kind of looks like a slow motion official coup 
where he's pushing, you know, Mohammed bin Nayef, who was our guy, right. uh, who, you know, the CIA liked very, or was at least was comfortable with. And they're like, who is this 32-year-old who now is going to be running Saudi Arabia? Well, and it's not surprising that the American intelligence community, you hear some of those grumblings because it is their guy, right. their, you know, Mohammed right. bin Nayef, right. who um, was the victim of Mohammed bin Salman's right. rise. Um, but I have to say, you hear a little bit of that grumbling in the region as well. Um, You know, young, impetuous, we need more measured actions. You know, Mohammed bin Salman is the author of the Saudi war in Yemen as well. And so it's, you know, he's he's clearly a mixed bag. uh, But as some Trump voters might say, well, there's no question he's going to shake things up. He's shaking it up. All right. uh, Speaking of shaking it up, the president... Our president. He loves uh, to shake things he up. He loves to shake it up. He loves to tweet. Uh, not always tweeting about real events. <laughs> uh, this week, uh, he tweeted about an Iranian missile launch, uh, missile test launch, I guess is how he was describing it, uh, and uh, obviously pointing to this in the context of the Iranian nuclear program and concerns that people have over their parallel ballistic missile program. Uh, and was very disapproving in his tweet. There was just one problem of it. The launch didn't happen. He saw old footage uh, on TV uh, and apparently without consulting any advisors to find out what is this that I'm seeing, went ahead and tweeted about it. Uh, And of course, his tweets do have that kind of that effect of being official (laughs) proclamations and statements. Um, So this guy, I think this actually kind of got lost in a lot of other big news this week. But really, it seemed to me a very revealing kind of moment that here is some real evidence, real proof, I think, that the president is reacting to huge events of, of tremendous foreign policy and national security consequence without seeking the advice of his advisors. Or if he did ask any advisors, they also didn't realize that it was old footage. Yeah, they were all also watching television. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I was surprised that this story didn't get as much sort of um, pickup as it should have. I mean, this is this is really scary, disturbing stuff. And we've seen sort of from the campaign and certainly since he's taken office, Trump's sort of rejection of the intelligence community and, and uh, you know, the the. De- deep state, and we've talked a lot about sort of the dynamics there, but it's also a rejection of information, basic information about what's happening. Um, And and there's less it's on Fox and Friends. Exactly, which automatically makes it true. Um, And so he, you know, it's it's not just that he responds in public and and his own statements will have consequences and have consequences in other countries, (laughs) potentially rather significant national security consequences. It's that he sort of, he takes what he sees on TV as gospel. We've seen this happen multiple times now when literally it's as easy as him picking up a phone and and asking i mean he can get information about is this credible is it not credible almost instantaneously at least sort of an an answer on you know hey where are we on this do we have information um it it indicates that he had no uh no advance uh you know sort of intelligence briefings on this stuff and so it does sort of um indicate that we have a commander-in-chief that is essentially driving blindfolded and whenever you think about the sort of awesome capacity and, and powers that he has, his tendency to be an incredibly impulsive person, to say things and then feel the need to follow through on them in some capacity just to save face, 
and the fact that he's getting garbage information from God knows where on the internet, that just seems like a sort of slow-moving recipe for a disaster. Wow. Okay, Susan, you're making me, like, you're making me or anxious. Or it's totally fine. It's no, totally fine. no, no, no. But, like, <laughs> I, I, think, I think that analysis is is quite right. I, I hadn't been thinking about it in quite that context. I was thinking about it more in the context of, like, What's he tweeting about and what's he not tweeting about? And, you know, how much has um, Secretary Kelly managed to get control as chief of staff over the behavior of his president? And this was one that either slipped by him or was evidence of the limits of his power. I mean, we were talking earlier about the Muslim ban 3.0 and the fact that Trump has not tweeted about a Muslim ban recently, which means that somehow that discipline was exercised or imposed on him. But in this case, there's no discipline at all. But I think you're right, Susan, because it points to not only kind of the personality of the, the, the person who is president and how deep-seated that behavior is, but also just how opposite the instinct of this administration is about news, you know, news information from sources that they like versus intelligence information. I remember being in government feeling a very strong impulse every time someone came to me with a news story to check it out and to check intelligence sources or to check with our embassy, did this really happen? Is it really like this? Before even going to my boss about it, before having a conversation about it. And it seems like President Trump's impulse is 180 degrees the other direction. I mean, I I think the reason that the story didn't make any waves is that it actually is stuff we all knew. And, you know, the president responds off of uh, Fox and Friends or off of, you know, whatever he happens to be watching. His emotional reactions are very conditioned by what he's seeing on television. And his uh, his. Uh, engagement with the real information that he gets by being the head of the executive branch um, actually is can be very hard to detect in contrast to this. And so I think this was really just a vivid example of everything that we already knew, just in a kind of a dangerous context. But I mean, to Tammy's point, I do... You know, we do have these mixed messages about, you know, John Kelly as savior bringing sort of process and discipline and information control. I mean, that was sort of that was the stories just a week ago, you know, that he was he was controlling what information was coming into the president. And, right, and I do think it's an indication of like the fundamental futility of that. effort. Yeah, but John Kelly, John Kelly can control. He's the chief of staff. He's not the chief of the president, and he's not going to change the behavior of a 70-year-old, highly impulsive, grouchy uncle kind of guy like Donald Trump. And this is an illustration of that. It's 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 an illustration, as you say, of the limits of the project, right? The project, he can prevent Sean Spicer from doing one thing and Steve Bannon from doing another thing and you know, Reince Priebus from, you know, like the sort of chaos of the staff is something you can bring discipline to and the information flow to the president in the organized way that the executive branch treats information, that's something you can assert control over. But if the guy wants to watch television and insists on host has, having his own Twitter feed and tweeting without talking to anybody first, if he wants to do that, there's no way you can prevent the president from doing that. 
one question I have when when a tweet like this surfaces, is it in the long run undermining his authority as president? If the reaction to it is, oh, there there he goes again, just you know, let him vent, let him talk, is that undermining him in the long run where he's essentially he starts being ignored? Uh, not ignored, but taken discounted. less discounted. Discounted, yeah. yeah. I mean, no. then, of course, he did it in the midst of the NFL tweets where the NFL tweets were anything but discounted, right? So he still clearly has the power to ignite a massive <clears throat> social debate. Um, I think there's a big difference here between domestic audiences and international diplomacy because with foreign leaders, especially foreign adversary governments with whom we don't have normal channels of communication, they're reading tea leaves. That's how they understand our intentions. And the president's tweets are tea leaves for them. Yeah. So that's exactly why it's dangerous in the way that Susan's suggesting. The NFL tweets, you know, it's a question of whether the media covers them and whether people want to get outraged about them. And But, you know, I agree with you that over mm. time they can lose credibility as indicators of policy to domestic audiences. Right. But I think in, you know, in the international arena where people don't have um, as much opportunity to probe his thoughts directly, they're going to take this stuff seriously. And, and the problem is that the signals that get sent that way are uninformed, as Susan said, and perhaps also unintentional, because it seems very clear from the pattern of his tweets that he's not actually thinking, oh, I'm going to send a message here. He's just literally like live tweeting the news while he watches. But I, I do think it has already started to undermine because, you know, Tammy, you said your first instinct whenever you got information was to go and verify whether or not it was true before you sort of brought it up to your boss. I feel that way about the president making inf like <laughs> representations now. Whenever he says something or tweets something, my first reaction is not, okay, Iran, Iran had a missile launch. What does that mean? And, and sort of the things that you would ordinarily do when the president says something, sort of take it as as at least facially true. I then wait and sort of and Google and try and figure out, well, did this really happen or, or is he misinformed? And so I think he has already undermined his basic credibility and that whenever he says something I don't think reasonable people can be sure whether or not it is true without the external validation but I think his supporters take it as true the minute that he says it and then it's very hard to dislodge the even other thing if he wants to dislodge it later the other thing that's notable though in this case he never came back to correct it right Right. he puts this out there he managed to delete these Luther Strange tweets but <laughs> right. he can't delete his false intelligence information all right, let's move on to uh, object lessons. Uh, I'll go first, actually. I did not bring this object lesson here today because it is 784 pages long. <laughs> uh, but I got a copy this week from uh, my friends at Penguin of Steve Call's new book, Directorate S. You heard about this? Yes. This? Sequel to Ghost Wars. Yeah, the sequel to Ghost Wars. So Directorate S with subtitles, The CIA and America's Secret Wars in Afghanistan and Pakistan, 2001 to 2016. For those who know Ghost Wars, it's kind of the seminal text or narrative journalism, I would say, of uh, the the struggle with uh, pre-Al-Qaeda leading up to 9-11 and kind of stands out with Looming Tower and a few other books, I think, is kind of in the 
Charlie Jakana. Wilson's War. Charlie Wilson's War, yeah, exactly. So Directorate S, the next installment, I guess. Uh, and Directorate S refers to, as the jacket copy describes it, a highly secretive and compartmentalized wing of ISI, which is Pakistan's intelligence, known as Directorate S, which was covertly training, arming, and seeking to legitimize the Taliban in, in order to enlarge Pakistan's sphere of influence. So super intriguing Uh like I said, very, very thick and intimidating book currently being used um, as a paperweight also. <laughs> Although Steve Call, to be fair, is a, a very engaging writer. Yeah, very. And uh, Ghost Wars is also a, a big uh, doorstop-like brick, but it's a total page-turner. Totally, And I, yeah. I think this will be uh, very worth the large amount of time that it will take everybody to read it. Yeah. Also doesn't come out until February 6th. And so the publisher's putting out galleys pretty early, but I said it's super early, but it feels a little early. But well, no. it's going to take that long to it's read it take in, long for in order to write to the reviews. It. Anyway, director at S watch for it. Susan. I have a follow-up object lesson to my last object lesson. Object uh, lesson after action report. Exactly. Um, on our event with FP, which was last night, um, it was totally packed. I mean, like the room was packed with people. Um, so many people came up to, to Ben and I and, uh, you know, and Matt and Quinta and, and others to sort of, you know, say what the site meant to them, said that they loved, you know, rational security, loved the law of her podcast. And it was just, I was really just moved by kind of the outpouring of people that like that showed up and, and we're interested in, and appreciative. And so thank you to everybody who came. Um, and you all get to be my object lessons this week. Oh, we're objectifying you all. We are all your, <laughs> we are all your objects. Uh, ben. I have two object lessons, both packages that arrived this week. Uh, the first, uh, which will be a, a, a matter of amusement, uh, came in response to our Boris and Natasha buy a Facebook ad edition. It came it was totally from, my accent, by the way. Yeah, it was totally Shane's accent. <laughs> I think it's I'm, fair to say that your accent was big hit. I'm perfecting it too. I feel like my accent last time was a bit more Let, like lay a little on us. Come on, no, you want to make the accent a little bit more with this sound too. <laughs> it came from Alex Stamos. Alex Stamos. Alex Stamos of 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 of, of Facebook. Of um, Facebook, my friend. It is a <laughs> bottle of uh, Jewel of Russia Ultra Limited Edition vodka, <laughs> and it came with a note that said, "Ben, Susan, Tamara, and Shane." Nice podcast, Tavarishes. Sincerely, Alex Stamos. So uh, just shout out to the good-humored folks at Facebook yeah. and to, to Alex. Uh, That's a little fan- bit that afraid f- to drink that um, vodka. That is a fancy-ass bottle. Too. Yeah, we're, we're, we're excited about it. <laughs> it looks like it has like a Santa Claus and Christmas on it. I don't know what's going on. So the other, the other uh, package came from Thomas L. Uh, from, and from a military base. And we're going to keep it that at that. Uh, level of generality, and it contains two hats, uh, of which we will put a picture on our uh, on the show page. Um, and uh, Thomas L. writes, in the United States Navy, the responsibility of damage control is drilled into every sailor's head from boot seaman to full admiral. In my package, there is a fancy red damage control training team cover. On board ship, it is worn by the sailors whose job it is to train others to fight fires, flooding, and other casualties. I think it will suit the team much better than red MAGA hats, since our nation is flooding, both proverbially with disasters in the South and the seemingly endless list of issues around the world that the administration isn't making much better. 
the breach in the hull will be plugged, but we will still have to dewater the flooded compartments. So, uh, first, awesome writing yeah. as well as awesome hats. Indeed, Thomas. thank you. Uh, and then the second hat he writes. Uh, in addition, I have a spare naval working uniform cover. Uh, blue camouflage for all of you civilians that I threw into the package. I would like to request that it is given to a hardworking intern from one indentured servant to another. <laughs> and so uh, our, our excellent intern, uh, Garrett uh, Hink, uh, doesn't know this, but he just uh, won a hat. <laughs> we have a lot of indentured interns around here, I think. We actually pay our interns at the Brookings oh. Institution. Well, indenturing is a form of pain. Barely pay. In some programs. They're eating. (laughs) Not on the streets all the time. They're absorbing the rich exchange of knowledge (laughs) that takes place every single day. So before Shane goes into the you know the credits, I just want to tell you all: don't buy a Casper mattress. No helix sleep. (laughs) Just cut that shit. Uh, You know. Go to your local mattress store, carry the mattress back on your back, you know, um, and by its sight unseen. And when and when you get a survey from Casper saying why didn't I, why didn't you buy a Casper mattress, you send them back a note that said because you don't sponsor rational security. <laughs> like if it's if it's a bad mattress, I'm going to make a list of all the podcasts that have plugged it and then call them out as liars <laughs> okay. by name on I this like podcast let's, of just let's do undermining that. their credibility. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, let us know how that goes uh, next time before we have the next podcast, but that's it for this week. Uh, rational security is of course a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive on our website. You can follow us on Facebook. You can tweet us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. When you download the podcast from Apple or Stitcher or wherever you download your podcast, please, please, please leave us a rating and a review. It's really been helping uh, other people find the podcast, and the numbers bear that out. We are doing great, so thank you for all We are that. doing great. We are doing awesome, you guys. Memo to Casper Mattresses. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, our audio engineer this week is Matt Com. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Patia. The music was performed this week by Donald Trump and the Make Believe Missileers. Okay, <laughs> good. It's alliterative. It's like a yeah. kids band. It's alliterative. The Make Believe Missileers. <laughs> They're not really launching missiles. That's just ice cream. It's I don't like know. the monkeys. <laughs> the monkeys. It's a fake band. I was hey, going to hey, try to figure the out the Beatles, but the what? Hey, hey, we're the Missileers. <laughs> God. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's a bad knockoff. <laughs> Uh, of course, our music is performed by Sophia Yan, who I'm guessing is more a Beatles fan than a Monkees fan. Let's hope. Let's hope, dear God. On behalf of my friends Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.